Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Kate Trinko, and joining me today is Gloria Taylor, a Senior Communications Manager at the Heritage Foundation. Gloria, welcome to the show. Happy to be back in the podcast studio. We're psyched you're here. (laughs) So on today's show, we're going to discuss Gloria's experience with a drug now being prescribed to children who think they are transgender. Gloria will talk about the side effects she experienced and what it's really like to be on a so-called puberty blocker. We're also going to talk about a new study out from the Heritage Foundation, which is the parent organization of the Daily Signal, that looks at transgender treatment for minors and suicide rates. And are you having trouble finding tampons at the store? Sorry to any male listeners, but yep, we're going here. And you're not alone if you can't find them. We'll talk about the latest crisis in the supply chain shortage. And as always, we'll crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those in the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please encourage others to subscribe. It really makes a difference. And now, let's kick off our discussion. Well, it's Pride Month, and that means if you're like most Americans, you've been hearing a lot about gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Americans. While the discussion about transgenderism can hit everything from women's sports to religious freedom, today we're going to discuss puberty blockers and the truth about how they affect you. Puberty blockers are often characterized as a prudential intervention that allows your possibly transgender kid to avoid, well, puberty. Here's how the St. Louis Children's Hospital writes about puberty blockers on its site. Puberty blockers, also called hormone blockers, help delay unwanted physical changes that don't match someone's gender identity. Delaying these changes can be an important step in a young person's transition. It can also give your child more time to explore their options before deciding whether or how to transition. The hospital adds, using puberty blockers is like hitting a pause button. By blocking the sex hormones testosterone and estrogen, puberty blockers delay changes that can affect gender expression, including breast growth, facial hair growth, periods, voice deepening, and widening hips. But today, I want to talk to Gloria, who currently takes one of the drugs that St. Louis Children's Hospital mentions as a possible puberty blocker, Lupron. So, Gloria, why do you use Lupron? Great question. I am not... (laughs) Not staged at all. (laughs) Not at all. Um, I am not a transitioning child. I am 28 years old, and I am a female, and I can define what a female is. And you're staying female. And I'm staying female. (laughs) Um, Yes, that's important important to note here as we get into this discussion. Um, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but about a year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, And so my particular type of cancer uh, is responsive to hormones. So estrogen in my body literally feeds the cancer and makes it grow. So when my doctors were discussing, you know, what kind of surgery you're going to need to do, are you going to have to do chemo, what's going to be, you know, the follow-up treatment after that, they told me, you know, 
your cancer feeds on estrogen. So once we make all these other treatment decisions, um, we're going to, for the next five to 10 years, just completely wipe the estrogen out of your body. And so to do that, I get a monthly shot of Lupron that is what they call ovarian suppression. So it just shuts down my ovaries, doesn't let them um, do what they're supposed to be doing and sends me basically into chemically induced menopause. Fun. Yes. So what was it like the first time you had this injection? Yes. So what really surprised me is when I went into the cancer center, they do this in the infusion clinic. Okay. So I'm literally walking in next to people that are getting chemo. I'm sitting in the chemo chair. It's a you know, pretty decently sized needle. They put it in your glute. Um, and after they you know, gave me the first one, I'm knowing, wow, I have at least five to 10 more years of this. And I just kind of like fell back into the chemo chair and started crying and thought, oh, wow, like I don't think I realized what had just kind of been taken from me. Like that's part of your womanhood, mm -hmm. um, like being able to have kids. Like that's off the table for me for at least, you know, five to ten-ish years. Um, so it was really emotional and I think it was just something I wasn't prepared for how emotional that was going to be. And when you say, by the way, as someone who's never been prescribed any of these medications, is it does this infusion last for a while? Like, are you sitting there for a time? So every time I go in, they check my blood work, and they're mm -hmm. checking, you know, three or four different hormones. You know, some of them show up as, you know, this is the level that would be in a man, or you know, this is the level of this type of hormone that would be in a sixty-five-year-old woman. Um, and so they do blood work, and then the shot takes a few minutes, but okay. it's it's pretty quick. It's not I'm not sitting there with an IV or anything. All right. So after the initial um, shot and that experience that you had, what kind of side effects have you been having to deal with? Yeah, great question. So about a month and a half after that first um, injection, I get them once a month. Um, and about a month later, uh, I was walking around a bookstore in D.C. with a bunch of my guy friends. <laughs> so this is so great. These, these poor, <laughs> these poor men. Um, and the first hot flash hit. And I mean, I immediately knew what was going on. Like, oh, my gosh, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> this is terrible. But they immediately took me to a snow cone stand. Aww. So shout out to them, the real MVPs. They handled it like a champ. Um, and I had been warned, you know, there's going to be a lot of side effects to this. You know, It may be for some people it's really bad. For some people it's not super bad. And so we're just kind of on pins and needles waiting to find out how wrecked I am going to get by all this. Um, so the hot flashes started. And for the first few months, I mean, dozens and dozens of them a day, like oh, interrupting meetings aren't giving a presentation and all of a sudden my face is red and I'm sweating and I can't cool down. Um, and then after, you know, the hot flashes started, then I started to get pretty bad um, bone and joint pain. That's something they warned me about. Um, and then weird depressive days started to happen. That's not something I've ever experienced before and was really like emotionally overwhelming. Uh, just, you I don't think people realize what happens when you mess with your hormones like that. I mean, I still cannot sleep without a tranquilizer, like the raging insomnia, yet I'm exhausted all the time. And not just, oh, you know, we all say I'm tired. Like literally I can be sitting up and fall asleep. I'm so exhausted. So just crazy, crazy stuff. Wow. And I have to say, as a colleague, I had no idea that, I mean, obviously I knew about your cancer diagnosis, but I didn't realize that you had this ongoing treatment. And I think you're less moody than I am. <laughs> I am not on this. So I'm going to do a little self-reflection. <laughs> but um, just everyone should know Gloria has continued to be an amazing 
and fun colleagues. So that's very impressive now that I know what you're battling. So you came uh, to me and uh, Lauren Evans, who is still with us, but too lazy to do it this week. Um, no, that's not fair. She had a ton of meetings. Um, but you were saying like you couldn't believe when you found out this was a drug that was given to minors yep. who were struggling with gender dysphoria. So tell me about finding that out and what your reaction was. So I literally found this out from the Matt Walsh, What is a Woman documentary. Love it. So I, I'm scrolling through Twitter and I see, oh, you know, this documentary is coming out. I'm super excited. I watched the preview. And they briefly mentioned uh, that transgender activists are trying to give – not trying. They are giving this drug to minors that are suffering from gender dysphoria and confused. And so what it does, you know, in the same way it blocks the hormones in my body, it blocks the hormones for a prepubescent, um, you know, kid. And I literally saw that and, I mean, I wanted to throw up one. I'm like, oh, wow, am I a transgender male and, like, not knowing it, you know? Which is not the case. I'm not. No. Um, but it like it made me sick to my stomach in the way that was like, emotional for me. But then I vacillate back and forth between these feelings of just complete rage that we would give something like this to a child who is already confused and suffering um, to just like heartbrokenness that this could even become a thing. And there's just so many questions that come up of where are the people advocating for these children? Um, Marguerite's going to touch on this in a little bit, like Mm -hmm. the lack of science that there is to even do this. And who's protecting these children? Like these are life-altering decisions that are being made. Well, and also um, I just can't imagine for a teenager who might already have mental health conditions adding on a medication that makes you perhaps having depressive states, yep. that gives you insomnia, which I don't think ever helps anyone's mental health. Um, it does not. I can attest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that just – and, you know, it just really struck me. Again, comparing it to the way this um, St. Louis Children's Hospital described it, it just sounds like, oh, you just put it on pause. Like, it just feels all very like, oh, this isn't a big deal. That's uh, a way you see in so many of these – if you're you know, like me on Instagram, all these different, you know <laughs> – Trans healthcare, you know, is needed, you know, little gifts that are all colorful and happy. Mm-hmm. It's like they portray this stuff as super safe, super temporary. Well, you know, the, I'm having bone density scans at 28 because there were, you know, five, 10 years from now that I'm osteoporosis because when you don't have hormones in your body, your bones get super weak and brittle. That's permanent. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not something that's temporary. The effect on my mental health, that's not temporary. I'm going to remember that forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, the level of politics that it looks like has been put in medicine is enraging and infuriating. It's, it's one thing. It's one thing if we're talking about adults, but for children, that's where I draw the line. Absolutely. Well, as you said, we're going to have Marguerite Bowling on next to discuss a new study about children and transgender treatment. If you're enjoying this episode of Problematic Women and want to find other similar podcasts, Look no further than She Thinks. She Thinks is a podcast production of Independent Women's Forum. Every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern, host Beverly Halberg is joined by policymakers and thought leaders to cut through the spin and bring you facts on the issues that matter most. From the economy and education to foreign policy and everything in between, She Thinks has you covered. Can't wait for the next episode to drop? You can listen to past episodes at iwf.org or search for the She Thinks podcast in your favorite podcast app.
The Heritage Foundation is out with an exciting new study this week, and joining us to discuss that is Marguerite Bowling. Marguerite is a Senior Communications Manager at the Heritage Foundation. Marguerite, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. So Heritage Foundation researcher J.P. Green put out this new study where he looked at this premise about whether it's true that denying care to teens who think they are transgender can be a suicide risk. Of course, that's something that a lot of parents and loved ones of these teens worry about. So Marguerite, can you tell us about this study and how it was set up? Sure. And so when talking about denying care, what what we're talking about is denying minors access to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, which have never been really studied for that use in teens who might have gender confusion or gender dysphoria. And the left likes to say, well, if you don't give them access and you don't put this on them on this regimen, they're going to kill themselves. You know, and the, the refrain that parents hear is, do you want a dead daughter or a live son and vice versa? And so Jay's looking at the – there's three studies that are out there kind of backing up this claim. And he's like, well, wait a minute. Is there empirical evidence that shows the opposite? Or what What? What if we did um, what he calls like a natural policy experiment of like states that have – give minors access um, to health care, not just these drugs but other, other health care as well versus um, states that don't allow – children to have access to mental care care without parental consent. So he he looked at the data, and what he found was easing access to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones has actually increased youth suicide rates. And that's contrary to the claims of the Biden administration and the LGBT advocates. Right. So were either of you, Gloria or Marguerite, surprised by the study's findings? What surprises me the most is the fact that this is literally going on. We are, this administration is saying, oh, we need to give children access to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, but cut the parents out of it. And there's literally not scientific data to back this up that this is good for kids. This is insane. Yeah. Insane. And like, I'm not a mom. I'm 28. Like, I can't even have children right now. But like this weird mama bear instinct of me of these poor kids that are hurting and suffering i just get so angry anyway. yeah and, and and jay even brings up you know he's he's said this is kind of an imperfect study that he did and, and it's you know it's a working paper and we're, we're looking at available data but there's no randomized control trial of does this drug experimental regimen work versus Watchful waiting, which is what parents were kind of considered to do back in the day, versus no treatment at all. You know, we don't even have those facts. So the fact that they're just saying, oh, the only way is this, quote unquote, gender affirming care is is insane. Right. And I think it's something, you know, and of course, you know, we just heard from Gloria about what how the drugs can actually affect you. But I think it's something, you know, as we also are learning more about people who have detransitioned, who might have transitioned when they were minors or still relatively young. And then they're like, well, I can't can't exactly go back once you've done all this stuff. I mean, obviously, you can reclaim your gender and um, you are that gender, I believe. But um, there are really very real physical changes. And I think what's interesting, and you touched on this, Marguerite, is Jay also looked at um, some older studies that purportedly showed like, oh, it is important that kids have access to this, quote unquote, gender affirming care. But he also poked some holes in those studies, right? So what 
Jay found his um, prior studies claiming that puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, you know, are protective against uh, suicide, did not have causal research design. Um, there are only a handful of these studies. They've been really poorly executed. They used surveys of convenience samples that are not representative of young people with gender dysphoria, um, you know, comparing those who sought and received cross-sex interventions compared to those who sought but did not receive them. So basically, they just they didn't have a good sampling um, to really make the claim that, yeah, that this actually brings down suicide rates in youths. Right. And, you know, the media just hammers you over and over and over again with these studies. So I encourage all of you to go to heritage.org and check out Jay's report, um, Jay Green's report. Um, it's It's a great report. One thing that I was really grateful for this report is that it gives a message and it gives some kind of ample evidence for people to speak back up against this because I know I'm seeing that same refrain online of would you rather have, you know, a dead daughter or a live son? How do you respond to that? Right. Obviously, you want to meet these parents and meet people suffering through this with compassion, but that's really hard to come back and, you know, speak the truth about and I'm grateful that we've got at least you know something to you know start uh, having a, a more nuanced conversation about what's going on. Yeah, it's an emotional blackmail, and it, this hopefully is giving parents a little more ammunition that they don't have to believe in the premise of that statement. You know, maybe the opposite is the case. These children probably do need some sort of mental health help, but that probably doesn't include puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. Right, and of course. Um Studies that are a little bit older than the current madness, I think, showed somewhere between 60 to 95 percent of children who at some point indicated gender dysphoria symptoms like simply grew out of it. Right. So, yeah, I know you talked about watchful waiting and it does seem like, OK, that's that's an option. You don't have to rush to all this. And then there was the Fox News segment this week where they literally – how old was the kid? Did anyone else it see was, that? She, I believe, was 12. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm misgendering. I'm not. Um, 12 and uh, started at 6, I believe. It's something – it was either 5 or 6 and it's just – Yeah, my it's memory crazy. is 5 or 14 to 14, I but I, they, I'm not but, sure. But I think the mother claimed that at 3, this girl that now identifies as a boy was saying that she was a boy. And, and that just boggles my mind as a mother of, a, of 3 and one of them being a 4-year-old. I mean – some days he just thinks he's insane. <laughs> some days he's normal. I mean, some days he's playing with his do- his sister's clothes. Some days not. I don't care. I don't make a big deal out of it. The irreparable damage done to that. Ch- I just I it just makes me so sad. It's a tough issue to see. Yeah, but anyway, this this report should help parents and everyone else who's looking for good data on this issue. Well, it's more good times for women in Biden's America. Not only are moms struggling to find baby formula, but now there's a new shortage, tampons. Time reports Procter & Gamble said in its most recent earnings call that it was still having trouble sourcing raw materials for feminine care products, getting them to the places that need them, and getting products on trucks to retailers. Time also wrote, the raw materials that go into tampons cotton, rayon, and sometimes pulp and plastic for applicators, which is really more than I've ever thought about this. But anyway, these materials have been some of the most in-demand raw materials throughout the pandemic as they've gone into medical products like personal protection equipment. As demand soared, supply shrank. Rayon is a byproduct of cotton. 
a finicky crop. And this is the third straight year that demand for cotton has exceeded production, says Shang Lu, a professor in the Department of Fashion and Apparel Studies at the University of Delaware. And side note, that sounds like a really fun department. Uh, in April, the raw price of cotton was 71% higher than it was the previous year. And it's not just supply chain woes. Tampons, perhaps reflecting that cotton price, are actually more expensive than they used to be. Time writes, overall, the price of feminine care products in the U.S. has risen 10.8% from a year ago, according to scanner data from Nielsen IQ. So what do you ladies think? Were you surprised to hear about this latest shortage? No, because, I mean, they're going to make us a shortage on everything. They are running our country <laughs> the into optimism. the ground. I would just like to know why I'm not seeing headlines. Biden's war on women yeah. between baby formula <laughs> and this now. Where Trump was, you know, the guy that was the war on women. I, I'm sorry. I, can we look at the evidence right now? I'm just saying. Well, yeah. It's not uh, to me. It's not as big of a crisis as the baby formula because you, you really can. You have options. You don't have to just use tampons. But this is such a. It, it's just making life more inconvenient for women. He's making everyone's lives more inconvenient in every possible way. But I will say, a year and a half ago, when I started the lovely Lupron that we've been discussing, I, in a fit of rage, threw away a lot of tampons because I don't need them anymore. And I'm like, man, I I should have thought of this, and I should have saved them for everyone. But why, why would that have – I mean it's sort of crazy to me. There was also – I forget if this was time or another source, but there's like women claiming in social media that Amazon is charging exorbitant rates because they're like – it's almost like a black market for tampons and it's so hard to get them. And Amazon I think has denied that and I don't even know if they set their prices. Maybe this is a conspiracy to get you to buy that underwear that they make <laughs> that you can use, you know? It's this actually is- a conspiracy for the left to say universal funding for oh, tampons. Well, well, except, as we all know, if there was universal funding for tampons, there would be even more of a shortage. Yes, true. <laughs> like we'd it, just be paying for it indirectly through tax dollars. <laughs> so, you know. Well, we are already. I think it's in, in Oregon. They put tampons in the boys' bathrooms in the schools. I think you're right. Yes. So, I mean, the government's always causing the problem. <laughs> Well, I will say we did have one Daily Signal reader who wrote in, and I don't remember if we published the letter or not. He didn't want us using his full name because he didn't want his employer to find out. But he, wherever he works, and I think it was in the Northeast, they do put tampons in the men's bathroom. And this gentleman apparently grabs them and gives them to the local homeless shelter, where actually homeless shelters do That's need so products like this. Huh. And he's like, we don't need that. <laughs> like, what is this doing here? I thought you were going to say that he used them for nosebleeds. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's really where I thought it was going, but that's actually really nice and sweet. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought that was a cool letter, but um, I'm not going to name him, so I don't want to out him. But, um, yeah, so we talked a little bit about media coverage of this, and I absolutely agree that if Trump was president, this would be headlines all the time. We would have women crying on national TV all the time and discussing <laughs> this. It would be a war on women nonstop. Um, but that being said, because it's 2022 and everything is ridiculous, NPR, which is funded by taxpayer dollars, tweeted, tampons, a necessity for many, are becoming harder and harder to find. People who menstruate are saying it's hard to find tampons on store shelves across the U.S. right now as supply chain upsets reach the feminine care aisle. How do you guys feel about the people who menstruate phrase? 
And I guess, I guess I just called you guys, so I don't know if that's me misgendering. But it's kind of that's kind of a universal term there. I'm I'm not offended, but this this objectification of women. We're breeders. We're menstruators. Like that's my only qualification. You know, it's 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 way worse. The and the women's rights groups just don't care. They're all lock stop with this. It's funny because they're erasing themselves. Yeah. And it's also crazy, and I wrote about this for Daily Signal a couple of years ago. It's like, you know, it's not accidental to being a woman to have a period. Of course, plenty of women, you know, don't have periods at various points for medical reasons or just aging or being young. Uh, but at the same time, like, you know, it's, I'm sure you guys remember your first period. I'm sure you've had plenty of times where, like, it caused a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine, although maybe I'm just projecting, that there's been mood swings and other fun stuff. And So uh, many fun things. <laughs> Great stories. Right. I Nothing mean, embarrassing ever. <laughs> I would happily have men take on my periods or my labor pains or anything else if they wanted to. But they can't. Let's just they can't. Right. And it's like this is part of what being a woman means. And to just like uh, appropriate that and pretend that it's something that both genders are. It has nothing to do with you being a woman. It's just it's very insulting. It's insulting. And honestly, I don't care to live in a world where people are living in their own world that they've created of like complete and utter insanity where two plus two is 12 and the sky is orange and whatever other thing that is completely inaccurate. Like I will not listen to them when they tell me, believe my lying eyes. Like, no. Mm -mm. And it's crazy how fast this has all caught on. Like I'm thinking back to, you know, the Obergefell decision, which obviously a different matter, same sex marriage. But, you know, if you had said seven years later, like a taxpayer funded station will be saying people who menstruate and like, and I don't think they're the only one. I, I think I saw a New York Times one, but I, I'm not 100% sure about that. But like we are seeing this language elsewhere and it just seems like it's happening so fast and no one is worried about how anyone feels except the a very small faction of the LGBTQ community. Well, it's so interesting. I remember, you know, three or four years ago, I'd see friends in college talking about how they, you know, had pronouns stuff you know, in, you know, introductory seminars. And now all of a sudden, this is, you know, very mainstream. It's in Instagram bios, it's in LinkedIn, it's wherever. And it's, it's the same thing with all of this. You know, it starts in the university, then it slowly just all of a sudden creeps out into, you know, pop culture. Yeah. And it, it's not helping anyone with any kind of resilience to deal with the tampon shortage right now. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just making these people feel like victims. And, and and now it's not just women, but there's some men that think they can menstruate that are feeling like victims because they can't get tampons. And it's just crazy. It is crazy. And hopefully this shortage ends sooner rather than later. <laughs> but. Though if Biden handles it the way he's handled every other crisis that he has created, he'll be two months late to respond and won't do anything of substance. And women will be going back on the rag because that'll be their only option. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. This this would be the grossest protest in front of the White House ever. (laughs) Anyway. All right. Fun stuff. Thanks to our male producer for putting up for that conversation. (laughs) And next, we're going to talk about our problematic woman of the week. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear lectures from some of the biggest names in American politics? The Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. These events are free and open to the public. To find the latest Heritage events and to register, visit heritage.org events. Now it's time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And this week, we're going to give it to one of our Heritage colleagues, Senior Legal Fellow Amy Swearer. 
Amy testified last week in the House explaining the pitfalls of using gun control as a response to school shootings. And so I will once again run through all of the problems with serious, or the serious problems with commonly proposed gun control measures. It's all detailed in my written submission, which I hope you read. Semi-automatic rifles are the type of firearm least often used to commit acts of gun violence. Pistol grips and barrel shrouds don't make them any more or less deadly in the context of mass shootings. While these, while these features can and do make a difference in the context of lawful self-defense for civilians, which is why millions of peaceable Americans own them. Standard capacity magazines are commonly possessed by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes. The few rigorous studies on their prohibition have found that the evidence for their success at lowering rates of gun violence is inconclusive at best. The context in which mass public shootings occur renders magazine limits effectively useless at saving lives. 18 to 20-year-olds are legal adults otherwise endowed with all of the rights and duties of citizenship, including the right to keep and bear arms. Even if it were constitutionally appropriate to punish a mass of responsible young adults because a handful of them committed atrocities, the vast majority of mass public shooters are 21 or older. And then I'll repeat the same viable alternatives that would be far more effective in a far more immediate way, again detailed in the written submission that I hope you read. Take violent crime seriously under existing federal laws and encourage your state and local counterparts to do the same. Authorize schools to shift the over $100 billion in unused COVID relief funds to physical security improvements, the hiring of armed trained staff, and the hiring of licensed mental health professionals. Promote responsible gun ownership without simultaneously imposing financial burdens on gun owners or hindering their ability to immediately respond to violent threats. Invest in the nation's mental health infrastructure to combat the two-thirds of gun deaths that are suicides. And the list goes on. But clearly, Amy's calm presentation of the facts got under some folks' skins. Representative Katie Porter, Democrat of California, essentially accused Amy of perjury. Here's that exchange via C-SPAN. I asked you if that bill was correct, if the bill would allow any gun owner to maintain possession, and you said yes. Yet you testified that the bill would allow people to become felons overnight. Earlier today, you testified that you hoped that this was the last time you testified before Congress. For the sake of our nation and the integrity of this Congress, I, said, I do Congress, too. After a mass shooting, trying to figure out how to solve a problem that we are all heavily invested in solving. Ms. Swear, that is I have not point of order. Point of order. How dare you? Reclaiming my time. How dare you misstate the law? How dare you ask questions that you do not even want an answer to? Ms. Swearer, I'm moving on. So Amy wrote a great piece for National Review explaining why Porter, who appears to have been referring to a statement that that Amy made in 2019 in a different hearing, was wrong. And I encourage you to check it out because it's a little bit complicated. But, of course, Amy did not commit perjury. Um, But here at Problematic Women, we love that Amy defended her values and her character despite being under fire from a congresswoman. And that's why she's our Problematic Woman of the Week. Amy is the goat. (laughs) Literally to walk in to that room in the midst of super heightened emotions, knowing that Democrats are going to come at her unnecessarily making this moment so political when she's trying to come forth with here are actual solutions that we can get behind to make sure this doesn't happen again. And then to have the courage to call out a member yelling at you 
and stand for the truth. Goat. Okay. Boomer question. What's a goat? The greatest of all time. Like Tom Brady oh. is – I don't believe this. Tom Brady <laughs> is the goat of football. That's not true, but that's what people say. It's the number one example. Thank you. You're and what's crazy is she's not, you know, she's not going to be lauded like the the left would be on this issue. You know, she's she's a superstar, and uh, nobody's going to see how empowered of a woman she is. Oh, it was Katie Porter that went viral, you know, on Twitter. Okay, well, hopefully we'll make Amy go viral with this week's episode. And that's going to be it for this week's Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we'd really appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a difference. Have a great week, y'all. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.